Last Sunday, we began our study on biblical deaconship, the diaconate. And we looked at several passages of Scripture in the New Testament, which the Apostle Paul, primarily looking at his teachings, spoke of a number of deacons and deaconesses. But the focus of our time was in Paul's letter to Timothy, where we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. And we sought to answer five questions concerning the office of deacon so that we would accurately understand God's design for His church. I think we successfully answered the first three questions, so that leaves us with the final two. So may I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we will once again be spending our time in verse 8 through 13. 1 Timothy chapter 3, reading from verse 8 through 13, the Apostle Paul writes, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons if they are above reproach, beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their own households well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So reads God's Word, which is absolutely authoritative. When writing to Timothy and this problem-ridden church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul, writing around the year AD 63, he found it necessary to provide instructions concerning the office of deacon. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 through 13, he insists that deacons, like shepherds, like elders, be properly qualified and then publicly examined before they are publicly recognized and affirmed as deacons. Five questions concerning the office of deacon so that you will understand God's design for His church. And the first question that we answered was, what is a deacon? And we saw from several New Testament passages that deacons constitute the second office in the church, the first office being the office of overseer, and the offices are distinct. The term deacon originated from the term, from the Greek word diakonia, which is commonly translated as servant or minister or service or ministry. But we typically use the Greek transliteration of the word deacon, which doesn't explicitly convey the idea of service, even though in the Greek it is, it is explicit. And in his letters, the Apostle Paul identifies and he acknowledges men and women deacons, male and female deacons, or deacons and deaconesses, if you will. And Paul, like Luke in Acts 6, explains that these servant leaders are worthy of recognition. 
Whilst every Christian is certainly called to serve, and we see that even within our own body, many Christians serving faithfully, not all will officially receive, uh, let's call it the title, deacon. Not all will be recognized for the office of deacon. In essence, a deacon is a recognized, divinely called servant leader who is equipped with qualities of a spiritual servant who serves together with other deacons under the oversight of elders, the overseers of the church. Whereas the office of elder is primarily focused on teaching and leading and praying and shepherding, the diaconate extends its service to every other ministry within the church. The second question that we answered was, what are the qualifications of deacons? We saw that the qualifications for male deacons are elucidated in verses 8 and 9, whereas the qualifications for female deacons are described in verse 11. This morning, as we review the second question, the answer to the second question, I want to compare the qualifications of deacons with those of elders. But first, let's begin with the third answer, the the, the third question that we considered relating to the deacon's home. What characterizes the deacon's home? In verse 12, the apostle Paul essentially describes two further qualifications and really bringing a magnifying glass upon just a little closer, in fact, in, in the deacon's home taking an examination of the deacon's home. Deacons are to exemplify unwavering marital devotion. They are to be a one-woman man. They are to embody the responsibilities of a Christian father and household manager, which encompasses financial, emotional, and spiritual provision. The home of a deacon should be marked by order and children who honor and obey their parents. Marital faithfulness and familial leadership really serve as a litmus test for the capability in serving God's people, God's house. Continuing with the qualifications of male and female deacons, I remind you that last week we began in verse 8. Likewise. But I don't want you to miss the close connection that this section from verse 8 through 13 has with the preceding section, which we read in verses 1 through 7, the qualifications of an elder. The continuation of thought is very clear. The adverb likewise in verse 8 links the teaching on deacons with the previous teaching on overseers. And as you compare them, these qualifications of the two offices you will notice that the qualifications for deacons and elders are not a whole lot different. They both focus on the person's character. And so let's take a moment to read these two sections together as as one section, much like the church in Ephesus would have heard it read in their day. 1 Timothy chapter 3, from verse 1 all the way through, to verse 13 reads, It is a trustworthy saying, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. 
An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their own household well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Did you notice how Paul repeated some of the character traits of elders and deacons? But he didn't repeat all of them. A lot of them are repeated, but not all. This is not to say that they are not important, but simply this is a matter of emphasis. Deacons, like elders, we see, must be above reproach. Verse 2, we see it described of elders. Verse 7, again of elders. And then verse 10 of deacons. They are to be above reproach. Male deacons, like elders, who of course can only be male, must be a husband of only one wife. We see that in verse 2 and in verse 12. Elders, like female deacons, are called to be temperate. Verse 2, and then for female deacons, verse 11. In verse 2, we see that elders must be sensible, respectable. And in verse 8 and 11, both male and female deacons are to be dignified. Elders are hospitable. Verse 2, and at first I was quite surprised that this qualification wasn't repeated for deacons. Perhaps it might be because of the meaning of deacon, someone who lovingly serves, who shows sacrificial hospitality within the church. But I think it's because the difference between elders and deacons is really one of function, not one of character. Both elders and deacons are to be models of godliness. And thus I would argue that the character qualifications of stated for the one really applies to both. Actually, all Christians should be pursuing these qualifications. These character qualifications should be true of all of us in increasing measure. And they will be as the Spirit continues to mold us and shape us and sanctify us into the image of Christ. We see at the end of verse 2 that elders must be able to teach. And no such parallel exists within the diaconate. But this qualification, unlike the rest, isn't character 
specific. It isn't a character trait. The ability to teach is the ability to teach sound doctrine and refute error. It's, it's a skill. It's an ability. Yes, certainly deacons are called, we saw in verse 10, to hold to the mystery of the faith. They must know the, the Christian faith. They must live it out. But they don't need to have the ability to teach it, per se. In fact, if you consider the many spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to the church, you could, you could group the gifts into two categories. Speaking gifts, serving gifts. Gifts of, let's say, the mouth, and then gifts of the hand. Generally, deacons have been especially gifted in the hands, the serving gifts, whereas elders have been especially gifted in the mouth, the speaking gifts. But there's more. If you look at the gateway qualifications of elders in verse 1, we read that if a man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work, a noble work. The office of, eld- of elder, of overseer, that is a weighty calling. To be responsible, to have to give an account for the souls of God's sheep is a huge responsibility. To govern Christ's church is a fearful responsibility. And that's why James warns in chapter 3, verse 1, Do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. It is thus apparent that not every gifted, godly man who teaches will be an elder because not every good, godly, gifted teacher aspires for the office. The aspiration is one of the qualifications. It is a gift, a calling of God that God has placed upon certain men, but not all men. And that gift is affirmed and recognized by the elders. So you can have men who are excellent teachers, seemingly possessing speaking gifts, the mouth gifts, but are not called to the office of deacon. Sorry, are called to the office of deacon and not to the office of elder. They're not called to the office of elder. They may not aspire, but perhaps they're called to the office of deacon. Unlike the office of elder, which is teaching and governing in its role, the office of deacon is not a teaching authoritative office. And therefore, we also see that God calls women to the diaconate. Titus 2 reveals that women who are gifted with the ability to teach are called to teach other younger women, and certainly children as well. But it doesn't mean that, you know, irrespective of how excellent a teacher she may be, in fact, she may be an even better teacher than me. It doesn't mean that she should be filling this pulpit. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear just in the preceding chapter. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. That is not her God-ordained role. The next qualification we see relates to alcohol. Both elders as well as deacons are not to be addicted, verse 3, or indulge in much wine, verse 8. Elders as well, we see in verse 3, are not pugnacious. They're not so inclined to quarrel or engage in conflict and disputes. Titus 1, verse 7 says that they are not quick-tempered. Instead, as we see in 
1 Timothy 1.3, elders are to be considerate, peaceable. They are gentle. It doesn't seem to be a direct parallel with deacons, perhaps because their primary ministry is serving, not speaking. Although the tongue is mentioned for deacons and deaconesses, deacons are not to be double-tongued, verse 8, or malicious gossips, verse 11. So the speech does matter. Both elders and deacons are not to be lovers of money, verse 3, and then verse 8. Both are to lead their household and their children well, verse 4 and verse 12. Although elders, Paul specifically adds that the elders' children are to be in submission with all dignity. And then he specifies why this household qualification is so important. Verse 5, if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, of course, this, no doubt, is true for deacons too. Their homes will either affirm their qualification or expose their disqualification. One of our members asked, why is it... What is included when the Scripture speaks of one's household? What is included? What's excluded? That's an excellent question. A household certainly involves one's family, but it's even broader than that. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, a household included not just the parents and the children, but it also extended to the extended family. It even extended to the servants or the slaves within the home. In fact, it extended to anyone living within the home. The head of the household was responsible for the well-being and the guidance and the management of all the individuals living within his home. This included providing for their material needs, offering guidance and discipline, maintaining an ordered and nurturing environment for all under his authority, and overseeing their general welfare. And this is a qualification for both elders and deacons. Their home is the testing ground. Their ability to lead and manage their household, demonstrate their capacity to serve in Christ's church, which we know is the household of the living God. Elders also cannot be new converts, verse 6, because of the probability that they may fall into pride. Now, we don't see this paralleled qualification for deacons. Perhaps it's because the office of deacon is not a position of oversight, but service. They don't exercise the authority that elders do. Nevertheless, the characteristics that the qualifications of deacons and deaconesses, certainly it it involves a degree of maturity in faith, which, again, in most instances would exclude a new convert. And then finally, elders must also have a good reputation with those outside the church. Verse 7, what does his employer or employee, colleagues, neighbors, retailers, extended family, what do they think of him? Can they bring a charge against him that would stick? Now, we don't see this direct parallel for deacons, although we do see at the end of verse 11, for female deacons, They are to be faithful in all things. 
Being faithful in all things would no doubt include her reputation with the outside world. What do her neighbors and retailers and extended family, and if she works, what does her employer or colleagues think of her? Because she is to be faithful in every aspect of her life. So as we've seen, there are a number of similarities between the qualifications of elders and deacons. And in fact, if you compare Paul's list of elder qualifications in Timothy with the qualifications of elders that he writes in Titus, you will see others there. And that means that we shouldn't see these qualifications as a checklist, but rather as a representation of the kind of person that God calls to serve in those offices. It's, it's, a, it's a representation of the kind of qualifications required for biblical maturity. These are the qualities, these are the characteristics of godliness. And based on these characteristics, can you really argue that the moral qualifications for elders and deacons are vastly different from one another? No, you can't. Therefore, I would argue that if you take the full list of character qualifications, which we read from verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3, all the way through to verse 13, and if you look at Titus 1, verse 5 through 9, and you hold them up against elder or deacon candidates, they should pass both the tests. They should be characterized as men and women who generally meet these qualifications. This is what characterizes them. This is what they're known for. The differences that we see in the qualifications between these two offices is really one of emphasis rather than complete distinction. Therefore, the qualifications for the one should be understood to apply to the other. The main difference between elders and deacons is one of function, not one of character qualification. Both are to be models of godliness. If we combine all the qualifications of elders, deacons, and deaconesses into a list, the overarching emphasis, what we see is a picture of godliness. They serve as the minimum qualifications that God requires for those that will serve in one of these two offices. So let me list them. Above reproach, a husband of one wife, but based upon what I'm arguing for a deaconess, you would also say she's a wife of one husband. Can't exclude that. Temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, I'm going to exclude that because that's a skill, that's an ability. In fact, just because a person speaks and teaches so well doesn't mean that they are above reproach in character. Sadly, there are many hypocritical teachers. But all are to hold fast to the mystery of the faith, the faithful word. Not addicted or indulging in much wine. Not pugnacious, not quick-tempered, considerate, peaceable, gentle, not double-tongued, not malicious gossips. And guess what? That's not just for women. Men can gossip too. Not lovers of money, not fond of dishonest gain, leading their household and their children well, children to be in submission to their parents, not a new convert, but having a good reputation outside the church, faithful in all things, loving what is good, just, righteous, holy, devout, self-controlled, dignified. Chris X, I know you've probably counted all of them, it's about 28, 29. 
The point, though, is that, remember, this is not a checklist. This is an overall picture of what godliness looks like. Because, in fact, Paul continues to add to these qualifications as he writes 2 Timothy, Ephesians, Galatians, and so forth. So we could add to this list. It's not just limited to these three passages. This is just a sample which illustrate godliness. So that was all review from last Sunday, really, which leads us to the fourth question, which we're going to strive to answer this morning. How do we go about recognizing deacons? What is the process in recognizing deacons? The answer to that question is found in verse 10. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, And these men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Notice the, the word first in verse 10. The word first informs that there is an order to observe when appointing deacons. They are first to be tested, and then they are to serve as deacons. We don't just choose the most skilled people to meet a particular need. We need to select the most biblically qualified people to serve within that office. You know, this discussion on qualifications, the overall emphasis, the overarching emphasis is character, not skill. One skill's mentioned, ability to teach, and that's for elders. Now, those two are closely connected. Very often, one's character in, in, impacts their performance, their skill. But so often, and I know that you understand this working in the, in the world, you can have incredibly skilled, efficient leaders who never drop the ball, but they are crass, harsh, impatient, aggressive. Such men and women do not qualify for the office of deacon. It's worth noting that the people being considered for the diaconate, they've already been serving for quite some time now in what we'd call the ministry of coordinator. They are our coordinators here at Livingstone Bible Church. And they've been through a period of testing. Nevertheless, the elders will present certain men and women to the congregation for the whole church to review and prayerfully consider. And as we present these men and women we are examining for the diaconate, you may have concerns about a particular prospective deacon. And if the concerns are scripturally based, then we would encourage you to discuss those concerns with the person in question. And if you still have concerns, you are encouraged to come and discuss those concerns with one of the elders. And if your objection is valid... If there is an accusation that sticks, then the objection will be very seriously evaluated. But if your concern is simply a matter of personal preference, with no biblical backing, then we will not take your concern into consideration. At the same time, even if only one person in the congregation has a verified scriptural objection, then the prospective deacon will not be considered for the office. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that the men and women that we present don't have any faults. It doesn't mean that they are perfect. 
No such person exists, right? Except for Christ, of course. But as you examine the person in light of these qualifications, the person should not be characterized by moral defects that are mentioned in these passages. And he or she should be characterized by the godly traits that are described. The elders have already begun meeting with prospective men and women, inquiring about their beliefs, their characters, their character, their interests, their family, their commitment of time. We've also spent much time praying, following Jesus' example, who prayed and fasted before he selected the twelve. Both elders and deacons need abundant grace from God. We need his power, and we need your prayers, which is exactly why we encourage you to be praying for your pastors, your elders, your deacons. That's one of the affirmations of commitment. Scripture says that we are to measure men and women by the standard of above reproach, assessing their moral character, their home life, their spiritual maturity, and their public reputation. And at the end of this public examination, the elders will once again interview and assess the candidates, and assuming that no disqualifying objections or accusations have come to light, and assuming that the candidate is still willing to serve in the office, then finally the candidate will be affirmed and publicly recognized by the elders through a process of laying on of hands and prayer. On Installation Sunday, the whole congregation will be invited to join the elders in affirming and officially installing the, de the deacons to this respective office. Yes, this is a weighty step for our church. And I'm pretty sure that some of you are wondering, who would be willing to undergo such an examination? <laughs> to be on the, in the spotlight, so to speak. To live in the fishbowl. Maybe you're wondering, why would someone be willing to serve in this office? And the answer may have something to do with their reward, which leads to our fifth and final question, which we'll strive to answer. What is the deacon's reward? What is the deacon's reward? And the answer to this final question is found in verse 13. Paul says, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, and he could really be describing the church of our day and age, he said, we are all too much occupied with taking care of ourselves. We shun the difficulties of excessive labor, and we frequently, and frequently behind the entrenchment of taking care of our constitution, we do not half as much as we ought. A minister of God and minister, servant, deacon of God is bound to spurn the suggestions of ignoble ease. It is his calling to labor, and if he destroys his constitution, I for one only thank God that he permits us the high privilege of so making ourselves living sacrifices, end quote. Verse 13 should encourage deacons. It should serve as an enormous encouragement for those who serve sacrificially. The apostle Paul explains that deacons gain significant influence and honor within the church. And they can become spiritual powerhouses for God, 
exercising bold faith in Christ for particular ministry. The first little word in verse 13 is extremely important. It's the word for, for. And for connects verse 13 with the previous section, emphasizing why these qualifications are so important. Some may question the high standards demanded of deacons. Well, verse 13 dispels any thought that deacons are insignificant or that their qualifications are not necessary, not as necessary perhaps as those for overseers. No, we've got to dispel such a notion. Whilst at the same time, this verse provides encouragement and great incentive for a deacon to serve wholeheartedly. So what is a deacon's reward? Firstly, deacons obtain for themselves a place of influence and honor within the church. A high standing is the phrase. And notice the opening phrase, those who serve well. The reward is only given to those deacons who serve well. The word well indicates commendable service done in the right way. When we considered pastor elders last year, we saw in 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 that Paul taught that elders who lead well, laboring and preaching and teaching, they are to receive double honor. A deacon gains a high standing, but what is this high standing? The, the Greek word for standing is bathmoth, bathmos, bathmos, meaning a step or a base of a pedestal, a stair, emphasizing the, the deacon's position or degree of honor. The word high in, the, in Greek, it's the word kalos, which is actually just good, noble, praiseworthy. A faithful, diligent deacon obtains a place of influence and honor within the church. And of course, a good standing in the church of God certainly means a good standing before God Himself. Right? We want to be pleasing to God. We want to be regarded as having been faithful. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul encourages a man who aspires for the eldership by saying that he desires a good work. It's a noble work. Perhaps, since some may overlook or underestimate deacons, he encourages them by explaining that deacons too do a good work in the church and thus gain for themselves positions of influence and honor. And to be honored in God's house certainly is far more honorable than to be honored in the highest position of government. It's far more honorable than to be honored in the highest, most prestigious university or global company. I mean, please. God's house, the church, is the most important institute, institution that exists on earth. Pursue honor in the right place. The second reward is that they obtain for themselves great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. They obtain great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, which is the opposite of fear or concealment or timidity. Faith can refer to either a fixed set of doctrines, Christianity's distinctives, or like in James, it can refer to this personal experiential faith which centers on Jesus Christ. 
not faith in an intellectual doctrine of Christianity, but really faith in action. James points out that faith is like a muscle that you must exercise. Deacons who serve well will grow that faith muscle. We've got a very active church. Gymmers and cyclists exercise the right muscle. Deacons who serve well will grow that muscle of faith and will therefore experience great boldness in their faith as they serve the Lord and His church. This comes with immense reward, communion with the Lord, empowerment by His Spirit, seeing His hand of providence at work, joyful fulfillment in being used by the Lord, answered to prayers, just to name a few of the graces, the gifts that come with this. This side of eternity, it is the closest thing to faith being made sight. Faith is a dynamic quality. It grows. It can grow stronger and increase, or it can be weakened. It can endure, or it can fail. Faith affects our prayers. Faith governs how we exercise our spiritual gifts. Faith motivates us to greater love and greater service. The whole Christian life is to be marked by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ, by living for Jesus Christ. Although deacons don't teach or govern the congregation, they can be spiritual giants, exercising bold faith. Those with bold faith venture out into new faith-inspired works for God. Those with bold faith will most likely be characterized by doing great things for God, moving mountains, generating creative new ideas to serve the church, showing mercy and love to others. Bold faith, which will result in them gaining new ideas for serving the church in practical ways, enabling the ministry of the word and prayer to be even more effective, going beyond minimal duties. That requires faith, a bold faith. As deacons serve well, they gain boldness in their faith to do even more. Yes, our faith is always under attack. Satan is attacking our faith. He is seeking to destroy our faith because that is the key to resisting him. Our faith is the key to winning spiritual warfare. But the deacon who faithfully serves by faith will be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Men and women of faith are men and women of action and deeds. And notice that the faith that Paul describes here in verse 13, it's not rooted in the deacon's own intelligence or skill or energy or financial resources. This faith is rooted in Christ Jesus. Biblical faith always points to Christ, not self it is Christ-centered faith. Don't be like one of those ministers who serve wanting everyone to see him or her. Look at me as I serve in this ministry. Aren't I just so amazing? You're idolatry. Don't rob God of the glory due his name. Biblical faith points to Christ and Christ alone. It wants him to be glorified. It is faith in the one who empowers and sustains us. It is faith in the anointed Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is the head of this church, head of His church universal. Jesus Christ is the supreme object of faith. We can only know the Father through Him. 
Without Christ, we cannot approach, we cannot serve God. Indeed, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Indeed, without faith, we cannot be saved. For we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, as described in the Scriptures, for God's glory. There is salvation found in no one else but in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to the Father but through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we receive His gift of salvation by faith, trusting in Him. And we continue to serve Him by faith, trusting in Him, living for His glory. Our faith also determines our capacity for God's service. Indeed, if we are saved, we are saved unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. And we walk in them by faith. When Jesus' disciples came to him and said, why have we failed to cure cure this demon-possessed man? Jesus said that their failure was due to their lack of faith. All that we truly do for God is done according to faith, by faith, through faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Deacons whose greatest honor and privilege is serving God understand that the reward of greater boldness in faith, that is a tremendous prize. That is reward in and of itself, enough of a reward. Why would they not want to serve in that office? Let's pray. Glorious Father, we are so thankful to you for your word and its clarity. And as we draw our time together in your word to a close, we once again approach your holy throne of grace so that we might receive help in our time of need. We approach your throne with hearts that are filled with gratitude and anticipation. We thank you, Lord, for the convicting message from your truth, from your word this morning. A message that calls us to a higher standard of character and service. Lord, we acknowledge that it is only through your grace and your guidance that we can hope to embody these qualifications outlined in your holy word. We pray for your transformative power to be working within us, molding us into vessels that reflect your glory. May your Spirit lead us in the paths of righteousness, hoping us to grow in wisdom and faithfulness and love. Father, we also lift up to you the leadership of this congregation. We recognize the weighty responsibility that comes with the office of elder and deacon. We ask for your divine wisdom to bestow upon those who are called to serve in these capacities. Lord, please lavish them with your grace Give them discernment and understanding. Give them faith. May you reveal in your perfect timing those individuals whom you have prepared and equipped for these roles. Lord, we trust in your providence and in your sovereignty. You know the hearts and the giftings of each member of this body. And we ask that you would make your will clear, guiding us to those whom you have called for for leadership call to serve in these offices. Grant us discernment and unity of spirit as we seek to discern your leading, your guidance, to see your hand of providence. Father, we eagerly anticipate the growth and the maturation of your people. We long to see your church flourish 
We long to see each member contribute their unique gifts and talents for the advancement of your kingdom. May we be a body that reflects, above all, your love. Apart from love, we are nothing more than a noisy gong. Please help us to serve in love, in grace, in truth, that we might most accurately reflect our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we leave this place this morning, we trust that you are at work within our midst, preparing and equipping your servants for the task ahead of us. May we walk in obedience and humility, ready to serve wherever you may lead. And we offer this prayer in the name of Jesus, who is our Lord, our shepherd, and the head of his church. Amen.